Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, February 4th. We begin with a look at the balancing act of health considerations and the economy during the pandemic. We catch up with a professor of sociology for his thoughts on how the government has fared. Next, we look at a projection at the future of health care across the globe. We dig into research that indicates a massive shortage in health care workers by 2030. Details on the study from a professor of family medicine from Queen's University. How are you handling the stress of the coronavirus crisis? If you're struggling, you can reach out for help. We hear about the resources available at the Calgary Counseling Centre. And finally, it's a chance to check out the work of local artisans and celebrate all that one of Calgary's oldest neighbourhoods has to offer. We learn about a unique upcoming event called Kensington Love. At 8.43, have Alberta's COVID restrictions caused a divide between the haves and have-nots in Alberta? And what truly has been the effect on the lower-income population? Dean Curran is a sociology professor at the University of Calgary and joins us now with his take on this issue. Good morning to you, Professor. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. In your opinion, has the province done a good job of balancing the health and the economy in our province? That is a, that's a great question. I, I think, I mean, to be clear here, um, it's a very complex issue because, you know, many of the restrictions do, I mean, anytime you take a good and you make it scarcer and you make it more expensive, you're going to make it more difficult with those with less resources to access it, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, those who are the most uh, disadvantaged probably have the strongest interest in limiting the transmission of COVID, right? Because they have been disproportionately affected through it um, in their communities, through their jobs. So it's a really, really tough issue. I mean, the one thing I would definitely emphasize is um, without, I mean, without access to the data on a monthly basis, where exactly are people catching it? Uh, where, you know, when are they catching it? What are the circumstances? It's, it's, you know, it's very hard to definitively evaluate uh, the province's response, right? Well, how have uh, the, the restrictions over the past year, and I know they've changed, they, and we've got continued restrictions right now, uh, how have they disproportionately affected lower-income Albertans? Are we seeing an effect? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the situation. I mean, the... The interview I did yesterday was about uh, specifically about gyms, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a specific instance in shifting from, um, uh, you know, basically you just needing to afford a gym membership yep. to having to do one-on-one training. Training now that's a very obvious case of a really significant mm-hmm. increase in in price uh, of a, of a good, right? Uh, in terms of um, many other restrictions i mean part of the it depends on the specific issue so the closing of the schools from may um well basically you know end of june but really end of august um that would put a huge stress in particular on single parent families right so um and and there's lots of research that's showing that um most of it's done in the UK, but that we could be looking at a potential crisis down the road in terms of how much damage is being done um, to children's education, in, in particular those uh, whose parents aren't already educated, right? Because there's, there's clearly a gap between those who are able to 
you know, monitor to children all the time, make sure they're doing the work, fill in the gaps, and those who simply can't do that. So, so I mean, that's just one example of something that would definitely have an unequal impact. And But we'll, you know, we'll see that, a, uh, you know, a decade away, right? So with a perceived or legitimate unfairness, is there a, a way forward? Is there a way to sort of help even things out? That's probably too broad of a question. I mean, even. it's a great question. Perceived, I mean, I think... Okay, so first of all, I think the thing we have to preface it with is almost everyone is suffering, right? Unless unless you have a boat in the middle of the ocean and, you, you know, you're posting on Instagram, everyone is suffering. Everyone finds this challenging, right? And, and some also are able to make meaning out of it, but it, it's incredibly painful for everyone, right? And it's not just the restrictions. I mean, if we were... If we were, you know, if, if COVID was just to run wild, there'd be an enormous amount of tragedy and suffering and anxiety as well, right? So w- when you're in a situation like that, and you, and this is what I was trying to have, when you don't have very much, and then something else is taken away, it can be very, very difficult. I mean, it, it, you know, perceived unfairness, legitimate unfairness, it's probably both, right? I mean, there are definitely situations where, you know, I mean, as a private citizen, I'd look at that policy and say, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, but, you, you, you know, everyone, it's a very complicated situation. Mm-hmm. And I can understand how people feel angry, anxious, yeah. upset. And and it's it's it, the problem with managing a pandemic is you, you have to have ninety nine point nine percent buy in, yeah, especially with the new variant. So you know we're used to you know people always say it's a free country, right? And and you can paddle your your canoe your own way or you can go your own way. That's in a in a, in a pandemic that's just not yeah. possible. Creates a lot of tension, right? Yeah, we're gonna have to leave it there for time, but it's nope. a very interesting conversation and something we've never experienced. So we appreciate some uh, some of your uh, thoughts on it. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. That is Dean Curran, a sociology professor at the University of Calgary. Six oh nine on the morning news. By twenty thirty, the World Health Organization projects a worldwide workforce shortfall of about eighteen million healthcare workers. But how can we combat the looming shortage? Colleen Grady is an assistant professor of family medicine at Queen's University and joins us now with insight into the issue. Good morning to you, Colleen. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what we were discussing earlier on the program as we were talking about this segment coming up that uh, and I'm wondering if this plays a part into it. Uh, it's got to be an, an incredibly, even more so than usual, stressful time to be a, a health care worker in the past year or so. Could that be one of the contributing factors uh, toward this, uh, you know, projected shortfall? Oh, absolutely. I think um, the COVID-19, um, the pandemic has certainly exacerbated the, the high levels of burnout and stress that already existed in healthcare. I, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back for some, I think, Admitting that perhaps were um, well, they're exhausted. Uh, they were disillusioned. They were perhaps there was some dissatisfaction previously with their position. They're now going to be rethinking that. So absolutely, that's made it a lot worse. So assuming with a potential shortfall, it would be people who, as we're saying, you know, might not be as willing or excited about getting into this kind of a profession, but also those who would be leaving it, whether it was their time or they just chose to leave earlier. So do you think, should there be more focus then on on supporting the frontline workers that we have to try and keep as many as possible in the industry? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes and yes. There's a real sense of urgency to this. I think retention has to be a primary focus. It's easier than replacing people, and it's much less costly, especially if you're replacing someone at the high-end, physicians, NPs, nurses, uh, becomes extremely expensive. Uh, So we have to do that by cultivating workplaces that speak to our needs as humans. That means sort of everyone wants to be part of something we believe in. We want to be treated respectfully. We want to feel like we're making a worthwhile contribution and be satisfied in our work. Um, So I think that's critical that we have to focus on that. So, you know, as far as, you know, most industries, when they they have a shortfall, they they start looking and and recruiting and looking down the line at at the future of their industries. What needs to be done to turn this around? 2030 sounds like it's, you know, far up ahead, but it's only nine short years, really. It is nine short years. Um, And healthcare is notoriously slow to change. So there's a real need for agility here from the government, but also from organizations. Um, to, to be innovative, to think differently, to forecast better. Um, no, we can't, uh, we can't sleep through this one. We have to um, be able to see it coming. And, and we have a, a baby boomer generation that's, going, that's aging, that uh, is a bulging group. It's aging, living longer. And we know that uh, more health care is needed at the end of, uh, at the end of our lives. So um, this is not going away easily. Is there, you know, a, a way that perhaps... I, I don't know who who who's responsible for making sure that we continue to get good people into these jobs on the front line. Is it a, is it a government thing? Is it all of us, or how, how do we help make sure that this doesn't actually come to pass? Well, honestly, Sue, I think it's um it's every it, it's a system wide thing. It, it's absolutely government um, that need to uh, look at sort of the pipeline of, of workers, so education and training. Um, but then organizations also have a role, as I say, in terms of cultivating workplaces. I mean, culture doesn't happen by accident. So cultivating workplaces where people want to come to work, mm-hmm. uh, we know they're doing challenging work. Um, so I think it, it, it's the onus is on all of us um, to, to look this squarely in the face and, um, and, and, you know, have a multi-pronged approach. I'm wondering, you know, as far as this shortage, you say it's system-wide, it's global, uh, but how do we compare as a nation compared to other nations that are going through this? Do we, are we at par, or is it more dire here than other places? Um, I can't really speak to that, Andrew. Um, in terms of numbers, I would say that we're probably about the norm. I mean, we have a healthcare system that we're quite proud of here, universal healthcare. Mm-hmm. But I think um, people people tend to take that for granted. We take for granted that there are going to be people there when we need them, and um, and that and we know it's a costly system. So um, does Canada fare better or worse? I guess it depends on which factor you're looking at. That's sort of a, a short answer to a very. Uh, challenging question. It is a challenging question. I mean, this is it's a difficult one to try and you know comprehend exactly how you go about battling that because it's a profession right now. I think everybody recognizes there's a lot of schooling involved, obviously, and there's a lot of work involved. But people who do it love it. So, you know, how how do you foster that for people who might not even have thought of the healthcare industry? You know, t- potentially to bring them into the fold, to attract them to the fold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, some of the things that I've read, this isn't, you know, hard evidence that I've come up with, but I have read, you know, it, it would be interesting. Ask a doctor, ask someone who's in a healthcare position, what would you say to your child if they wanted to go into this profession? Would you think it's a good profession to go into or not? I, you know, that's, 
it makes me wonder, um, based on what people are up against. Um, you're right, people that go into healthcare are very passionate. Uh, they're wonderful people. They are caring people. Um, uh, mostly my article in the conversation talked about and my research is around, um, are we caring for those people? This is the quadruple aim. Are we caring for the carers? And I think there's a lot of work to be done there. If we see these numbers continue to dwindle, what might the healthcare system look like in, in Canada in uh, nine years? What, what do you think that would look like, Colleen? Well, some of the outcomes um, that, I mean, certainly wait lists, we know, um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, one to two years to see an ENT specialist here in Kingston. Uh, that could be a lot longer. We have um, unattached patients, uh, thousands of them. So it could get more difficult to have a family physician. There's no question about that. Uh, so for patients, you're waiting longer. You don't have the continuity of care if you don't have a family physician. Um, and certainly an outcome for the economy would be we know a robust healthcare system contributes to a nation's productivity. And, you know, in countries where um, health care costs are very high for an individual, and that's why we, we appreciate our universal health care. But um, it creates wealth for the community we live in. So if we have less doctors and less and more unattached patients, that's going to be um, quite detrimental. It's a trickle-down effect for sure, isn't it? I mean, it was something we need to really be aware of and start working towards so that we don't see a shortage like that. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. That is Professor Colleen Grady, who is an assistant prof of family medicine at Queen's University. Well, it's been almost a year or a year about now that the pandemic really changed life as we knew it. And as the virus continues to cause issues for us right across the country and around the world, so does the feeling of loss, the fear, distress that so many people have. We've got some tips now on how to deal with a lot of those feelings through the pandemic. And joining us to talk about it is Dr. Robbie Babbins-Wagner, who's the CEO of the Calgary Counseling Centre. Good morning, Robbie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Appreciate your time always. I mean, you always make us feel better when we, when we have a chat <laughs> with you, and, and we need it right now. Are, are you seeing a real uptick of people looking for help through the Calgary Counseling Centre right now? We are. in the Just in January alone, well, last year we were up about 17% in requests. And uh, normally we would see about three to five. So that really speaks wow. three, five percent. So that speaks to the demand. And I would say the same thing this year in, in January. January was up about 17 percent. So uh, some of this is typical in January because the days are long. Uh, you know, it's still kind of dark outside, especially in the morning. Um, but I think the virus has definitely had an effect on um, on people's response. We're seeing way more requests for anxiety than ever before, uh, depression and stress. So those are probably the three top areas that people are coming to counseling for. We're focusing on the now and you, you throw a January into mix that we've heard, you know, is the most uh, uh, depressing month of the year. But I'm wondering from your perspective and for what you do for a living, uh, you must have seen a lot of changes over the uh, past mm -hmm. uh, uh, year as far as what requests were for at the beginning, uh, you know, over the past six months to today. And that doesn't even factor in p people who have already needed the help of the Calgary Counseling Center before the pandemic. Yeah, we we have, and um, we were really fortunate in that um, government, provincial government, and others really stepped up to help us be able to increase our capacity. We were able to hire new staff to be able to respond to the need. So we're really, really delighted about that. But a lot of what we're seeing is is people. Some people are coming in asking about anxiety, but a lot of people are talking about all the change they have to deal with, and the fact that all the uncertainty. 
I think this problem is different, for example, than the flood was in 2013, because the virus is not visible. We don't see it. Mm. We can't touch it. So it brings uncertainty and lack of clarity to people. And I think one of the solutions to some of that and what some of the things that we've been talking about is that one that people can um, figure out and learn how to manage the parts of their lives that they can manage. And I think the other thing that the virus has done or the past year has done is really allowed a lot of us to slow down yeah, and focus at home, focus on the people that uh, A, we're living with. And if we're not living with people, to find connections and to maintain them and to support others who are dealing with some of the same issues that we are, but they're alone as well. Okay, so anxiety, depression, stress, those are the three top things yes. that you're, you're seeing through this. You know, and I, I can understand it. I, I have it. We have all three in my own house, I'm sure, in just about everybody. So, you know, other than, you know, trying to, to, to I guess, have somebody that you can talk to in terms of in your own house, what do we do outside of that? Is it okay? And is, at what point do we start reaching out and calling a place like the Calgary Counseling Centre? I think if you find that the strategies you're using just aren't working, everything you've tried, everything your uh, your family has recommended that you do or your friends have suggested that you do, that some of the self-help books that you're reading suggest that you do, if that's not working, give us a call. Because you may not need a lot of support, but we may be able to help you with some strategies for you that will allow you to get kind of find a new balance in what's happening and be able to deal with the uncertainty ahead. Because, you know, the good news is, you know, we have vaccines coming. The bad news is, is the virus isn't going away anytime soon, even when we have the vaccine. So I think we're going to be learning to deal with the uncertainty, learning to deal with the practicalities of how we manage both home and school and work are going to be a part of our lives, I think, for the next couple of years. Over the past months, uh, Dr. Babbins-Wagner, I'm wondering if, if you've had, a, not looking for a stat, maybe you have one, but uh, have you had a, a real uptick in people who have never in their entire lives, perhaps never reached out to, for, for counseling? Yes, we have. And we've seen that all, we've seen that in the last year, because not only are people at home, uh, where, which is, and a lot of people want to be at work, want to be with their friends, want to be in school, but a lot of people have dealt with loss of various kinds loss of family members, loss of ability to see relatives and friends and loved ones who are living in other parts of the country and um, in other places in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think there are so many issues that the pandemic has brought to us that forced people to figure out how they're going to manage it, Um, how they're going to manage their own distress, their own loss. And, you know, I think the other really, um, the new piece in this is how do we grieve for people, for loved ones who've died? And we've not been able to be there for the rituals of death and burial, for being together with family and supporting each other. So all these pieces are new, and we're seeing people across the lifespan. So we're seeing young people who are anxious about not being able to be at school and folks well into their 70s and 80s who are dealing with loss of friends, partners, loved ones, and adult children who are dealing with, you know, the stress of of having parents in uh, care homes where they either can't visit or the restrictions have really limited their contact with parents. 
you know, as you say that, it just makes me think again, it's it's cliche to say it, but we re- really are all in this together, aren't we? It's just affecting us perhaps in different ways. But, you know, I, I think as a mom and as a for anybody who's a parent or a grandparent, we see our kids struggling too. Is there an age limit to, to bring in our young people to the or reach out to the Calgary Counseling Centre on their behalf? No, we see kids as young as three and, you know, seniors well into their 80s. You know, we can't, we don't do talk therapy with um with the real young kids uh we'll actually because all our work now is online so we'll actually work with games and toys online and the sessions with with kids right with little kids right now are much shorter uh 15 minutes 20 minutes because you really can't spend they don't have the attention span to be Mm -hmm. online too much longer but we also are coaching parents in how to support their kids who were who are struggling let's say with online learning um, or who are struggling with some of the social restrictions at school and the lack of sports activities. I know that's coming back now, but that those have been big barriers for for kids. And as parents, most of us haven't had to deal with those challenges uh, with our kids to this point. So all I think every single one of us has been dealing with new things. And the good news is some people are reaching out for support and counseling where needed. And a lot of people are, ma- are really managing well in the community with the support of families, friends, and neighbors. Well, an incredible time. And I guess for any questions, is it calgarycounseling.com or is it best yes. that people reach out by phone? Yeah, either calgarycounseling.com and, uh, or they can call the, our number, the registration number is on the website. And, um, um, and we're happy to answer questions. We're not necessarily looking for people to come in, but we're happy to provide whatever support we can. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Dr. Robbie Babbins-Wagner, CEO of the Calgary Counseling Center. 749 now and Kensington excited to announce Kensington Love, a series of outdoor winter fun during the month of February in one of our favorite communities of the city. Joining us with details is Annie McGinnis, Executive Director of the Kensington BIA. Good morning, Annie. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, we can't do much indoors, so we best get out there and enjoy and you're giving us a place to go and, uh, and, and enjoy some art and keep warm in Kensington. Tell us what you've got going on. Absolutely. So from February, this runs February 1st to 28th, um, and we have got uh, a, a new, newly released Art Walk map. It's on our website. It's downloadable, and we've got information about more than 30 art installations already existing in Kensington, and we are adding more. So we've got a big selfie heart um, near the Plaza Theater, um, and we also have, uh, we did a balloon installation back in November, December, mm-hmm. um, in our old British phone booth on Kensington Road down by HSBC. And we're doing two more balloon installations um, in that phone booth, and, and they look really fun. Um, they're compostable balloons, um, so we're, we're being in environmentally um, uh, friendly. Uh, really terrific looking. Go down and take a selfie with the, those, and you can be entered to win a prize. Uh, we've also got um, a monthly art grant that we just announced. It's uh, their little micro project, art projects for Kensington, um, and there's uh, just a $200 a month um, that you can apply for to do a little art project to add to our our, um, 30 plus projects already we are putting up beautiful new banners just in the next couple of days we just it's a little cold today so (laughs) but uh, they'll be they'll be up within days so watch out for those they will go with our Kensington love theme um, love in all all kinds of ways Uh, we're also going to be doing fire pits we're collaborating with the city of Calgary um, and starting um, February 12th I think 
So Friday evenings and then Saturdays and Sundays, we will have several fire pits on the wide plaza area and some really cool um, seating and lighting that we've uh, uh, collaborated with um, some architectural firms um, to compete. So there'll be three different installations there as well. So it's time to come down to Kensington and take a look. There's lots of February specials. Uh, there's some um, good, I think, some participants in the Hot Chocolate Fest. And so lots of reasons to come to Kensington. And it's easy to get here. There's a Sunnyside um, um, LRT and good bus service if you don't want to come and park. Annie sounds very visual and, you know, very interactive as much as you can be, but also family friendly. Mm-hmm. Is it is it family friendly? Absolutely. It's family friendly. Um, it, it totally is. And and some are light up projects that uh, you can see at nighttime um, and lots are colorful projects for in the daytime. And, uh, you know, we'd love you to come down and take a look. And we also have got new lights on the street light poles. Uh, so, you know, we look really pretty at night, but also really nice during the day or even on just a gray winter day. So worth coming down and taking a little look around. Hey, Kensington is always worth hanging out in, and it just makes it even more so. Thanks so much for the details. Thank you so much. Go to the website, KensingtonYYC, for more details, and hashtag us, KensingtonYYC or Kensington Love if you're doing any social media posts, and we'll pick you up. Sounds good. Thanks, Annie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is Annie McGinnis, Executive Director of the Kensington BIA, and again, KensingtonYYC.com.